Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. So on today's episode, I want to talk with you all, three teachers, three teachers I admire, about the idea of being a teacher. I was reflecting about this before we started the episode. Maybe you guys disagree with this. I'd be interested to hear, especially Paul, that if you think about jobs that people do today, there's probably a lot of jobs that people do today that didn't exist 100, 200 years ago. But if there's a, out of the handful of jobs that have been out there for a very, very long time, being a teacher is one of them. One of the kind of universal human roles that people have filled throughout time. And so I'm really intrigued by just that idea of what is a teacher, specifically what is a, a teacher in the classical education world and what does it mean to be a teacher? What? So to start this conversation, I want to ask each of you individually, how did you end up being a teacher? None of you that I'm aware of have education degrees, but you are all teachers. So Martin, starting with you, how did you end up as a teacher? Well, I was working in education policy for a number of years. And uh, <clears throat> and then it, that actually got me interested in education. And then a, a, a friend came to me and wanted to start a school. And so I started thinking about it, and I thought that'd be a really good idea. Uh, I didn't know I was going to become the first and only teacher uh, at that particular <laughs> point in time. And so I just started doing it and wasn't very good, I think, at the beginning. Uh, it is something you do have to work into and use as practice and experience, you know. That's the only way, I think, to become <clears throat> a good teacher and to to uh, to watch good teachers teach. I mean, that's, you know, Im imitation, which is a, a classical mode of, of learning, really. Um, so I, you know, I was doing it wholesale and then uh, decided I wanted to do it retail. And <laughs> and uh, and it took a while to to do well. It, it just, you know, and really most of that was just knowing how to relate to young people hmm. because if you're not teaching, you're usually not in an environment where you're relating to young people. And, and that that is an art that you have to learn. And it took me a few years to learn that. Your self-awareness about that growth is pretty interesting. And I want to double back to that. But before we do that, Tanya, how did you end up being a teacher? <laughs> Cheryl Lowe. <laughs> I, this is a crazy story. Um my son was in her Latin class and told me over and over that he couldn't do his homework because he didn't understand it. So I asked her if I could sit in just enough to figure out what he was doing so that he couldn't use that excuse with me. So she gladly let me in and I stayed for two years. <laughs> and then she asked me the first year that she had enough students to have each grade she asked me if I would consider teaching, and I literally laughed in her face. I said, you know, I majored in English the first time, and then I didn't want to teach, which was all you could do with an English degree. So I went back and got my accounting degree. And at that point, I had a tax business in the small town that we lived in, and I was doing 700 tax returns a year and working really hard. And I just thought, yeah, I'm going to go teach for you. I don't want to teach. I don't... There's nothing that I ever, I never thought I wanted to teach. And then after tax season, that spring, 
I was in my tax office. I could literally take you back to where I was standing. I had gone from my desk to make copies, and I was halfway back, and I just stood there. All of a sudden, I just stopped and thought, you know, I think I'll teach, which was just crazy. It was crazy. You know, these things don't really happen very often where God literally turned your thought process to, it was like I had no choice. And when I told my husband, he was like, hang on, um, this is, so you're gonna, you're gonna not do taxes anymore where we were making, you know, I was making a pretty good living to go work in a cottage school two days a week, which is going to cut your income a lot. And I said, yeah, I think I am. And so I went to Cheryl and said, I think I'm going to do this. I want, so I observed Lee teaching one day and, and I sold the tax business and she handed me all these books and said, we don't have any curriculum. You're going to have to write it this summer. So I went to my mom's on the beach and sat on the beach and wrote all those study guides or on her porch and worked hard all summer. The whole time I was terrified and thinking, what are you doing? You're not a teacher. You don't know how to teach. You've never taught except in Sunday school. And this is nuts. But I, it was like I didn't have a choice. And so, and the whole time, you know, she was mentoring me. And so the first day of school, I was terrified. And I walked in there having no clue, no clue what to do, really, except, you know, she had guided me some and I had watched Lee teach. And it was one of the best days of my life. I mean, I was just euphoric. It felt so good. And I never looked back. I just loved every second of it. And it makes no sense. I, if you had asked me if that I whether I would have ended up in a classroom teaching little children, I would have said there was no way. It's a great story. At what point do you think that you kind of changed your mindset and were like, "I'm a teacher"? Well, it it kind of happened without my mindset, and I I felt like from that very first day mm -hmm. that I was a teacher. Now I had to work very hard because I'm a perfectionist and so I for everything I was teaching so I was teaching the middle ages and so I bought every remaindered book every time I would find a remaindered book at Barnes and Noble or Holly Cook and I would buy it and put it on a shelf and whenever I had to teach so I would spend all weekend prepping I spent all summer learning about the middle ages which was I was only teaching famous men of the Middle Ages. It was really kind of nuts, but this is the way I do things. Sure. And so so I was really prepared to teach. But as far as learning the pedagogy, and of course, I had Cheryl as my example. Mm -hmm. You know, I sat in her class for two years as a student, and that helped me a lot, how to use the board. I figured all that out because I had sat at her feet. And so that that did help me, but... I never really had a point where I thought, oh, wow, now you can do this. I was constantly still working on it. Even when I wasn't teaching anymore, I was still, you know, some things worked, some things didn't. And we were, but we were a new school too. So we were figuring it out together. And that did help. Yeah. Not to have to go into a, an established school with all these teachers who knew what they were doing. Right. We were just kind of a mess, <laughs> really, in those years. So, Paul, how about you? Well, I was sitting there trying to think about the first time I taught, and then I realized that when I was in seventh 
grade, my mother sent me to this one room. Well, it's really two room because mom taught kindergarten through second grade. And then uh, the other teacher who was starting school taught third grade through, I guess, seventh grade because I was the oldest. And um, because she had third through seventh grade, she couldn't teach math to everybody. And so she'd be like, all right, Paul, here, go teach Patrick, you know, fourth grader, go teach him math. Because, you know, at that point, I should know that because it was three years behind, you know. And I ne- like, it, I don't know. It's just I, I grew up sort of in that environment of just, you know, you somebody needs to learn something. You just tell them what to do. Um, never really seemed to be a big deal to me. And then, um, after high school and college, you know, be similar things where they'd just be like, here, go teach this class. And while, you know, at the school where I'm studying and like, okay. Um, and then when I was over in, when I decided to move home from Italy back to Kentucky, my dad was like, what are you going to do? I was like, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. And, um, he said, why don't you ask Cheryl if you can teach Latin? And he's like, you know, when she taught you, that's grown into a school. Maybe she's got something for you. And I was like, great. It was going to be a one-year deal in my mind. It was a one-year deal. And it was just so that I could get my feet underneath me and figure out what I wanted to do. And I never left. Um, (laughs) And, I mean, it's the first year teaching at Highlands. Now, at, at that point, we were teaching, our periods were an hour and a half long um, for upper school, seventh grade and up. And I just remember being absolutely exhausted after every class. <laughs> I was doing the same thing Tanya was doing. You know, I was using Dorothy Mills books, but I was going to Books a Million or Barnes & Noble or whatever and finding, you know, other things and buying those and reading more. And I'd get up there and it was so exciting to see the lights going off in those kids' heads. And and I love that seventh, eighth grade range because they're they're coming into their own. Some of them don't want to talk, but if you can get them to talk, then you can then you can really have some fun and you can see the transition from grammar school to high school just happening in front of your eyes and so i mean i had a lot of fun but at the end of every hour and a half long period i'm like i need a break because it was you know we we were digging so much into it but it was so rewarding you could just see those kids changing um and you know but at the same time i lest we paint a rosy picture, um, you know, my seventh grade boys class, I had a chair of frustration and that was for me, not for the kids. I didn't put the kids in the chair of frustration. It wasn't like a dunce cap. It was when I knew they knew it, but they just, it wasn't having a good day. And I would just pull out the chair and I'd say, guys, I need 10 seconds. And I'd sit down and they're like, Oh dang it. We've disappointed Mr. Schaefer. And then I stand back up and they're like, okay. And I was like, we ready. And then they, they'd be on, they'd be on track, you know, but it was, you know, small things like that, that just kind of happen naturally depending on the group. And, um, and we, you know, it, it was just something that was fun. Yeah. So I have a pretty limited teacher experience compared to you guys, but I also came to be a teacher through a kind of a circuitous route. I had taught a fair amount in non-school traditions before I got to my time at Memorial Press. Um, But I've kind of lived my life with a philosophy that I would call the stand by the huddle philosophy. And that is, if you know anything about football, that even if you have no talent and no size like me, if you stand next to the huddle, 
There's going to come a time where the coach grabs the nearest guy with a helmet and throws him onto the field. What's a huddle? Uh, it's the area that people stand. It's the little group of players that football. people stand in uh, on football yeah. where they decide who's going to play on the field. Oh, I didn't even know that happened. I thought they, yeah. all, I thought they knew who played. It actually doesn't in a lot of teams. Anymore. Yeah, you know, now the huddle is less yeah. popular, but you're ruining my metaphor. So anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> as a lowly editor at Memorial Press, one day they were walking through saying, we need a substitute for composition. Who can do it? And I was like, me? And they're like, why? And I'm like, I, I can do it. I'll do it. And I got thrown in and I've been teaching for, at the college school ever since. So, um, but it's, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a really awesome time. So one thing that's come out of each of y'all's answers to this question has been this thought process of, as you took the position, there was areas where you needed to grow that you didn't go in as fully formed mm. teachers. What are you, some of the things that you would identify as ways that you grew as a teacher to become better? And what were the things that took you there? The thing that takes you there is just trial and error mm. and your poor children have to suffer <laughs> your when you make mistakes you know you may try a project that you think well this is a great use of time and it's not <clears throat> and that was the hardest thing for me was was trying to be creative stick with the curriculum but also I knew that time on task was very important and so if I felt like I had wasted time by trying something that really just didn't work, then that that for me was, a, you know, a failure. And just learning how to, you know, how to discipline, how to love them, but control them at the same time. Having, I mean, every now and then you would get a class that is just a teacher killer class, where you forget why you're teaching because you're just so worn down by trying to control that class and you can't make a joke and you can't have any kind of levity at all or you lose control. And and then the next year, you start in with your new class and you think, oh, yeah, this is why I'm doing this because I love it. But you forget that sometimes. I mean, a class can really change everything. As good a teacher as you are, sometimes that class can kill you. When learning to relate to students, how much of that would you ascribe to your own kind of emotional intelligence, people skills in, that is innate? And how much was it that you were observing other teachers doing it well and you were picking up things here and there from other people? Well, I would say, I mean, I had a huge advantage when I started at Highlands because I was half the time working for Highlands, half the time working for Memorial Press. And one of my projects for Memorial Press was trying to tape classes so we'd have some example classes to show, which never saw the light of day. But I got to go into those classrooms and watch. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would spend, I mean, I spent a lot of time watching classes. And I remember that's when like my my eyes opened about the the magic that's worked in kindergarten, first and second grades. Because uh, there is no way I could teach. I, I don't believe I could teach a child to read. The child needs to come to me already knowing how to read. Um, but it was, you know, it was magical. Like I, I watched it. I know the techniques now because I sat there and watched it. But it also gave me this vision of, okay, this is what these kids have been through. So this is what I can expect of them. And, and watching those teachers teach was huge to me. Um, I really think that's the best yeah. way to train a teacher. And I spent a lot of time in sixth grade. I was teaching seventh and eighth grade. I spent a lot of time in sixth grade because I could see, okay, this is this is what they had last year. And so I knew exactly what to expect. That was huge too, because I yes. was watching a veteran teacher teach sixth grade who had, who you know, and I knew 
that I could, I could imitate those things and yeah. expect the same results. The reason I ask the question is because I, I feel like we encounter a lot of times people who are saying this teacher um, is just really gifted as a teacher and this teacher is not. And so they, you know, maybe give up hope on that teacher, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there's a lot of growth that can happen just through observation. Oh, a lot. A yes. lot. Oh, yeah. And you can't give up on a teacher. You know, you have to keep, eventually you may have to, and hopefully they see by that time when you are giving up on them that they, it's not a fit. But most of the time, you can bring a teacher along. They're, not everybody can go into a classroom and just be a natural teacher. There is a huge learning curve to it. But observing other teachers and also, as Paul said, doing, knowing what came before, what the students know, and what comes after, what they need to know when they leave your classroom, all of that is so important. That continuity among class to class to class, is that's huge in a school. But Shane, I'd like to draw a distinction here, though. When it comes to like learning to be a teacher, you've really got two things going on. One is just like classroom management and pedagogy, and the other was just content. And so, you know, I, there, I've seen times where it's a bad administrative decision that we've put somebody who knows Greek to go teach a Latin class, an upper level Latin class that, you know, he just doesn't know the content well enough to get that to the students. doesn't matter whether he's a good classroom manager. He just doesn't know the content. Sure. Right. And, you know, I mean, hopefully, right. I mean, a, a veteran teacher could, could pick that up and go, okay, well, I can just stay ahead in the content. Right. Um, but if you have a new teacher who is, having to struggle with the pedagogy and the classroom management and having to learn the content that can get overwhelming and they don't have enough to sure. give of themselves. And in our lower school, when the teacher has to teach every subject, mm-hmm. so you have to know so much mm-hmm. going in. And we started a few years ago having our teachers fill out the study guides that their students would be using in the summer. So they actually have been through the curriculum. Sure. It forces them through the curriculum. And that, I mean, that is huge. If you go in and don't have the content, then it, it's just going to, you're going to be miserable. Right. But if you can go in confident, knowing that you know more than you have to teach, and it's a lot of work. It is hard work to be a teacher. It's the most underpaid, hardest job in the world. Martin, how about you? You you talked about your own growth and your own feeling that you didn't start out as a fully formed teacher. What, can you isolate some of the things that you grew in and how you got better as a teacher? Well, I, I did have the one advantage. I had worked in public policy, and I I was I was a communications person. You know, messaging, uh, legislative strategy. Uh, you know, writing press releases. I probably written two thousand press releases in my lifetime. Um, and so I, I did have that advantage of, of, of having a basic understanding of how you communicate with people. But then when you get in the environment, you, you have to take account of your audience. And it is a different kind of audience. And I'm dealing with mostly middle schoolers and high schoolers. And you, you have to be the most confident person in the room. You have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to be the funniest person in the room. You have to be ahead of them on everything. And that's hard to do. And you can't contradict yourself. And you can't. Yes. Yeah, they, will, they will catch you out. Yep. Um, and, and so just, just mastering those three uh, rhetorical skills, you know, ethos, logos, and pathos. 
they have to believe that you know what you're doing ethos. They have to have confidence in you and, and they will find your weaknesses uh, if they can. And you have to, um, you have to know your stuff, you know, logos. Uh, and, and you have to be able to present it in an attractive way, pathos. Um, so that's, that's just, that's something that you, you can't ever learn how to do without just plain doing it. And, 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 and you have to kind of, you do have to have kind of an ideal in your mind of what a good teacher is. And I, I, I realized after many years that there were elements of Mr. Hall, my history teacher mm. in high school, you know, who'd draw on the board and he'd get to the edge of the board and he'd just keep going on the brick on the wall. And he just, he had this winsomeness, you know, and, and then uh, teachers like my Spanish teacher who... Uh, taught a very grammar-based uh, Spanish course. And I was not a good student in high school, but I got A's in her class because it was such a well-organized class. So there's a little you know, bit of that too in terms of the assignments and how all that goes. There's just, there's so many factors to it. Uh, but you, you do have to have some innate skills coming in and then you just have to develop those on, on, on some model, whether it's explicit or implicit uh, in your mind about what a good teacher is. Shane, can I do your job for a second? Yeah. So uh, always. Er, thank you. Um, earlier, you, I'm only taking questions from Shane. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask it. You can, you can deny it if you want to. Um, earlier, you mentioned how you didn't know how to relate to kids early on, right? Because you'd worked in adult settings mm -hmm. and you came into the class and well, it was legislators. So it wasn't that far. from <laughs> um, But then you, you also said that you had to be the, the smartest, the funniest, the, you know, and I think a struggle for young people, like, I mean, I was 23 when I started teaching at Highlands and the, the, it's a common struggle where you're going from being the student to being the teacher and you still perceive yourself as one of the students, mm. um, as a really young teacher. And you didn't, you, you had to learn to relate from, because you were solidly in the adult camp. Now, how do I get these, these younger kids to relate to me? Where I think a lot of brand new teachers are, ha are having the opposite struggle mm. of how do I become the adult in the room? Especially if they look as young as the students. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's, it's kind of a mix of both because, you know, or particularly when you're doing literature, you're teaching literature or something like that, and you're discussing things in class, um, it, you, you, you are in a way... Uh, you know, a searcher just like them. And so that it's a trick that you have to pull to be both the leader and also with them in discovering something that you may not even have known until some student brought it up, you know, and you, so you have to value their contributions and, and yet still be the teacher and the authority in the room, which mm -hmm. is, which is a, it's, it's can be hard to do. Yeah, it, it is very hard. I, I mean, I remember when I was teaching philosophy, I think even this happened in seventh and eighth grade too. Like, we have a discussion. I'd be throwing stuff up on the board and somebody w talking about not contradicting yourself would say, well, Mr. Schaefer, you said this and that, how do those two things go together? And it, there'd be enough on the board. And I'd say, well, I'll, let's think about it and let's contemplate. And I'd, I'd, I'd go and I, I would 
stand in the back of the room alongside the back row for a minute or two and just say, all right, like, and, and I would give them silence. Let's contemplate this. We've, we've talked about this. All right. Now who has an answer for that? Right. And instead of it just being, you're talking about that being that, that searcher as well. Mm -hmm. And in philosophy, I mean, they would stump me. I mean, sometimes be like, I need to come back to this. Yeah. I mean, Um, you have to kind of, kind of let, let go a little bit too. I mean, I, I, I cannot count the number of times, uh, uh, teaching a short story or a poem or something, and I'm looking at the thing just like they are, and I see something I did not see before. Or some student points something, and I'm going, "Oh my gosh!" And you, you, mm-hmm. if, if you, if you are very straightforward in saying that is a really good observation, I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're betraying that you did not see that before, which is a, kind of putting you in a vulnerable position. But you you just valued something that they they said mm-hmm. or saw. And it, it's mind-blowing. And you start investigating mm-hmm. that. Look, look at what so-and-so said here. Did everyone hear what he just said? You know, and you, that's, they like that. And they, they, you're co-searchers for truth. I think you're pointing to the fact that it's very hard to be truly honest as a teacher if you're not also extremely hardworking. Right. And you have to be honest because they can spot fakeness mm-hmm. a mile away. Yes. And if you're not sincere... They, they know it. And if you don't know your yes, stuff. And right. if you know your stuff and you're really confident, then when they do point something out that you've not thought about, it's very easy to say, that is great. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. haven't thought about that before. Right. Like, otherwise, because, they, they sense that insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, the, there's the saying, fake it till you make it, right? But but that faking it till you make it, right, is is you have to have that confidence, but you also have to be able to, to admit, I don't know that I'm going to come back to you tomorrow or whatever it is you know yeah, or that's an amazing yeah. insight that i didn't and see it, yeah and if they ask you a question that you're you're stumped by you just say that is a really good question that, that's such a good question. i mean thought of that question i mean that mm-hmm. you know make them feel good right. about it yeah. and then they don't sense any insecurity you're being honest uh and they respect that yeah so i want to go around the table and ask you guys each what are the things that you liked about teaching the most and the things you disliked about teaching the most? And hopefully we get a couple of war stories out of this as well. So, Paul, do you want to start? Well, I mean, I've like kind most? of already said, I mean, I've highlighted the thing that I liked was just seeing those light bulbs go off in their faces because you can see it when all of a sudden they put they put two things together. All of a sudden they're, they're no longer thinking in a concrete way. They're starting to think more abstractly. And what are the ideas in this in this text? Um, that is, that's very exciting to me. It's, and that's, that's, I, I just, I love middle school because it was like, in, in some ways it was throwing them in the deep end of the pool mm-hmm. and every single one of them was like, wait, I know I've been taught to swim, but I've never actually swam. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Swam, swam. I, yeah, I can never swim. figure that one out. That's a um, really good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. <laughs> so, um, so you know, and then then you get to see you know all these kids out there swimming that you know at the beginning of the year they didn't think they could. Yeah. I, I loved that. Um, I'm just going to take the easy easy thing I hated doing was grading. There you go. Um, that is that's just it's uh, you know. But honestly, I don't think I can complain because here at Highlands we are very um, reasonable about the amount of evaluation that needs to be done. Sure, right, and it can be done in a lot of different ways. 
So it's not like every day you're going home with a stack this thick of papers. Unless you teach sixth grade. Mm. Well, and then you've got a stack of papers from every class. <laughs> well, yes, but you might get that. Are, are you getting that every day? No, but you're getting it's yeah. a lot. It yeah. is a lot yeah. of grading. I think yeah. we would all agree grading just really stinks. But but I'm just saying there are schools that say you have to have this amount of assessments. And I've, right. I've gone to train at those schools and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I don't even like, know how, how are we going to get this grade? Right. How do you, because so, we don't have those tests built in right. regularly enough. Right. right. Yes. It is. It is. There is a lot of grading, but it's it, but compared to what other people experience. But then K to two doesn't have to grade at all because they don't give homework except for Prima Latina tests. Those kindergarten teachers are so lucky. I know that's what I. But then I think, could I be it? No way. Am I teaching a child to read and write? You know that just their day itself to me sounds really scary. Mm. But then they get to go home at night and and have their evening. Yeah, I'm not saying that primary teachers. Have an easy job, Tanya is. I just want that. I just want the record to show that. I did that. not say that. I said they didn't have to grade papers, but okay. I think they've got the hardest job in the world. They Their children actually don't know how to use a Kleenex sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I guess I would trade and take the homework. So, Tanya, what about you? What do you do you love about teaching? I would agree with Paul mm. that just inspiring passion in the students and watching that happen is just the most fun thing. And just having a great discussion together, seeing those light bulbs go on. I mean, that's why you're there, right? And that is absolutely, I, when I taught Anne of Green Gables, I was determined the first time I taught it that the boys were going to love it, or at least just like it. And so I started, I read the first chapter, and I was very dramatic and really talked about Anne and her personality. And we were about a third of the way through the book, and we were having a break, and we, it was during our lit class, and they were having a restroom break, and a couple of the boys in the middle of the classroom were sitting there chatting, and they said, and one of them said, so what do you think about Anne? And the other one said, eh, she's all right, and I thought, I've done it. I mean, that to me was enough. That was That's enough. Right. And But I worked really hard for them to like Anne, because my own son did not like Anne, and it just broke my heart. And I just thought, you know, I can make these boys like Anne of Green Gables. Of course, the girls just loved it. So, I mean, that for me was the thing, was just that experience with those children. And the thing I don't, I think the hardest thing about teaching is, besides the, the grading, but really is the it's very isolating. Mm-hmm. And so as a teacher, you spend every workday in a classroom with a bunch of kids. And it's very hard to get teachers together on a regular mm-hmm. basis. There's no time for that, really. I mean, they they might have a 20-minute break for PE or choir or something like that. But even in the lunchroom, they're sitting with their students. So I I find that difficult not to be able to have adult conversations through the day and just to be we're all doing the same thing but we're doing it we're all doing it in separate mm-hmm. rooms so there's not that that immediate camaraderie that you get in an office setting and so I to me that was that was a difficult thing is I wanted to be with those other adults sure. and talk about what we had done and that's hard to do Martin well, it's just a, I think it's the the meeting of minds that you you get, 
particularly in a in a, you know with older students when you're talking about some idea or some something in a story or something and you all see it at once you know and then then you hear the the kids after class you know and they're walking out and one of the boys says to another one that was incredible that when he when they point you know they're talking about it as they go out you know that that just you know if you if you're teaching things that you yourself uh, value and you can pass on that passion to your students, that is the most fulfilling thing is to see that same passion in them and that you are able to excite that. There's nothing like that. Yeah. I had a teacher who I really loved who a couple of times, he like really influenced me a lot. So a couple of times I tried to like tell him how much I thought he was great and that he'd influenced me. And every time he looked so embarrassed and he'd look at me and be like, yeah. And it was, it didn't occur to me till later that the, he was like, I'm not the thing that's interesting. Mm -hmm. The thing that's interesting is the stuff we've mm -hmm. been talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and you know, I, that I've always he brought it alive. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I would suggest next time, write your compliments. Yeah. Uh, that That's actually, that was one of the things that I looked forward to the most were thank you notes at the end of the semester of the year because, and you could tell kids that were just doing it because their parents made them, <laughs> but you could tell the kids that were like, this re legitimately has touched me. Mm. And, you know, I, I keep all of those. Sorry, students. Um, yes, I do keep them. And because it's, it's nice to go back and look at those again mm. and go, Oh my goodness. Like that, that year it was tough, but you know, I have proof that at least, you know, a quarter of the class walked out being touched, you know, and, and you trust that you touch the other ones too, but the, you know, just like you, the, it was 10 lepers. No, those lepers, the ones where one comes back, comes to, back say to say, thank to you. say this, yes. he comes back to say, thank you. And so you, you trust all the other ones got cured too, but you know, the one I see, the one that comes back and says, thank you. That, that is, that for me was, was a huge part of teaching. Mm. And when you, when you get to be an older teacher, <laughs> and you have some student who you haven't seen for 15, 20 years and at this point in my life. And the they'll and you've kind of a lot of times forgotten them, you know, and, and they'll I was in your class and then you remember who this is, and they said, Your class was was so good and I, I just want you to know it, you know, it's the same kind of thing. And you know, after all that time, they're still thinking about your class. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty pretty mm -hmm. good stuff. So switching gears a little bit, we work a lot with homeschool families and people that are using curriculum at home. And a lot of times the mom and dad in those families are teachers. What advice do you have for homeschooling parents as they think about being teachers? Maybe Tony, start with you. I found that so difficult. I really tried to instill passion in my own children at home. And I would... <laughs> I would, they just were never that excited about anything that I had to say in a way that they were when they were in Martin's class or um, classical studies. And I would stand outside the door and hear the class laughing and the teacher laughing because they had talked about some great funny thing that had happened in the Iliad. Or, I mean, just, I couldn't do that with my, it was hard to, I, I couldn't, you know, I'm, I couldn't lecture them in a way that it's just a whole different thing. I felt like I could do it in my classroom of students. And I did teach my fifth grader. And but at home, it just it just is a different dynamic. And so I do think that the discussion is important. 
but it's different than I think of teaching is really, it's really like a performance, which is why you're exhausted at the end of it, because you are up with an audience at home. They're your children. You're sitting around the dining room table and it's just different. But I do think you've got to have the discussions with them. It's just more one-on-one. You have to talk about what they've read and really try to do your best to bring it alive for them. But really, that hybrid situation that I had my children in where they would go one day a week and then two days a week, that was ideal because then they were accountable to somebody else. If I said, you need to get your logic homework done, then it didn't have the near the weight that it did when I said, you're going to class tomorrow and Mr. Cothran is going to expect you to have your logic homework done. You know, it was just, it was nice to have them accountable to somebody else. They were terrible logic students, weren't they? I, uh, not particularly. Maybe not the best. But, you know, <laughs> uh, you know um, it, 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 that it is really hard. And, it's, and, it's, and it, this, is, this is where, number one, I think the father's involvement helps. And online classes outside, particularly when they get older, help because they do that outside accountability mm-hmm. is 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 really important because they, they they've heard mom saying that they want this and mom's let it go a few times and they're counting on you yes. to let it go this time and you know so so online courses i think are, are really helpful in this regard but if i can come come from the other side of this yeah. um and that is uh, a lot of homeschooling mothers are becoming teachers mm. Um, I, I I spoke at a or I, I was listening to a talk um, at a conference and uh, there was a professor talking about how you know we need to teach Latin. It was about Latin and how important it is to teach Latin. And um, one of the ladies stood stood up afterwards in the question and answer period. And she said we'd we'd love to to teach Latin in our school, but we can't find Latin teachers. And after she got done, I raised my hand and I said, wait about five or 10 years because you're going to have all these homeschooling mothers who taught first form mm-hmm. or, uh, or Henley Latin or something. Um, and they're going to have, they're going to know Latin now because they've right. taught their kids Latin and they're going to be knocking on your doors at, at your schools. <laughs> and so uh, just fairly recently, uh, we had one of our uh, classical Latin school association um schools, the headmaster called me and said, we just lost our advanced Latin teacher. Uh, do you know of any Latin teachers in Florida? I don't know a single Latin teacher in Florida. I don't know if there are any Latin teachers in Florida. But, but um, I said, have you checked with your local homeschool group? But the next day, she had a teacher mm-hmm. replacement for her who had, got, had taught through Henley. And she was better than the teacher she had. Oh. She, she wasn't a you know, she wasn't a, a certified teacher or anything, but she knew the material and she was good. And that's going to, you're going to be seeing a whole lot more of that kind of thing is these homeschooling mothers who know the material now, they've taught their own children mm-hmm. and they're they're going to be a whole lot better fit than I was yes. to learn how to teach well in the classroom. Well, yeah. And the online academy is offering adult Latin classes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Can we right. play your theme music for your commercial right now too? Right. <laughs> 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 Yeah, any other advice from you, Paul? Uh, well, Aside from enroll your students in the online <laughs> academy. <laughs> Is this just general teacher advice? I lost I lost Yeah, track. for homeschooling families. Oh, <clears throat> I just I would echo what what Tanya said. I mean, I was trying to think of 
my experience being homeschooled. And the one thing I remember is the one subject that mom was passionate about, which was catechism. That's the one thing I remember about that. You know, I mean, it, it, she was able to communicate passion there um, in a way that, you know, she didn't have to communicate passion to me in literature because, I mean, we still talk about the fact that I just, I mean, I would read anything I get my hands on. I mean, I was just a voracious reader. So she didn't, you know, and, and when I was, I started going to school when I was in sixth grade. So up through fifth grade, it wasn't like a whole lot of discussion going on. It was just, let's read it. Let's talk about or Let's, you know, make sure you understood what was going on and, um, and move on. So, but that passion, somehow she was able to do that. Um, and so that's from the, from the student perspective, uh, you know, looking back at it, that's, that's where as a teacher, I realized if I don't show my passion in a school setting, they're not going to pick it up. They're, they're just not going to be engaged. And, you know, as Tanya said, it's hard to show that passion. Sure. It is in a homeschool setting. but It is. And some of the passion I found with my own children at home was inspired listening to each other. Mm. So the first student does the Iliad. The second student's listening to us talk about it, listening right. to us, you know, get ready for tests and all of that stuff. So then the second student comes along and does it, and then they talk among themselves. I really think the best conversations we had were when they were both involved mm -hmm. at the same time because they had that shared experience. Well, and th this is the thing, too, and, you know, what Paul said about loving literature you know i i know some homeschoolers and the program they're doing is not literature rich and their their students don't have any passion for mm -hmm. it it's like you you mm. need to make your child children into readers. And one of the ways of doing that is reading to them. Mm. I think this is mm. this is just a huge thing. And my my wife will say to this day, you know, that her favorite memories are, you know, uh, sitting around the dining room table after everyone's finished and 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 I read the story, you know, uh, Betsy Tasty when Betsy makes everything stew and it tastes terrible and and all the the funny things in those stories. Th those were ways of bringing our family together, and my kids loved that. They loved being read to, and my grandkids love being read to. So I, I think that um, that has to be, I think, at the center of any homeschool is reading to your children. And, my, you know, my wife would do it uh, in the middle of the day when she's reading the Bible to them during their homeschooling day. The 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 little ones are being read a picture book before bedtime. Dad is is reading to to the whole family uh, after, after eating uh, when you push the— dishes back and, and you just yeah that would make me a nervous wreck I'd be <laughs> doing the dishes while you read <laughs> well and it, you know also you don't have to it, any effort in that regard can have a, a, a big influence I don't remember I mean I'm sure my parents did some reading to us and I remember I only remember one book my Rachel. I think I think she went through trying to do this and she did it like two or three books and then it kind of faded out from my memory. I, my sisters would probably correct me. Um, but the one book I remember is Cheaper by the Dozen. Oh, yes. And, you know, but, you know, we all grew into readers. Um, and so even if as a homeschooling parent, you say, well, doing that every night, that sounds tough. Well, just try one. Mm -hmm. And if that's all you get to, that's all you get to. 
but that may have an impact. Yeah, I think I think books at the at the center of this enterprise. Uh, my grandkids, they all love books, physical books. They have bookshelves, and they have their favorite. But they're arranging their books on their bookshelves, something you can't do with a Kindle. Uh, and and uh, there's it, it, it's it's got to be an essential part of your home culture. Yeah, so there's there's hope for for homeschool families to take the the job of teaching seriously. Oh goodness, yes, passion. yes, and so many are doing that. Right. They're doing such a good job, mm-hmm. and it's hard. <laughs> you know, the, and the more children you have, I think the harder it is. But it's it is so worth doing, yeah. and it does. I mean, reading is at the cent- at the center of it. I was so fortunate that my husband heard on I think NPR. Somebody say that um, only 10% of men read to their children. And he, mm-hmm. at that point, he said, I'm, because I was the one who always read to them. I was the one home in the daytime. I read to them before bed. He said, I'm going to start reading to them before bed every night, which totally freed me. I did not stay in the room with them. They would go to their bedroom. They would get in bed and he would read every night. Mm-hmm. And it was, they did that, I mean, till they were almost adults. Yeah, and this is important because because a lot of fathers feel lost in terms of what their role is. That's sure. right. How can they be Because he had no is clue what we role. were doing for yeah. school. Well, that that I was my yeah. I was controlling that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um one other thing, yeah. but going back to what Tanya was saying about in, sort of intentionality and preparation in the classroom, um the the way my my mother did this and we we still give her grief. But there was no game in the house that wasn't educational. <laughs> like we 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 played board games and everything, but you know, Monopoly, okay, because you have to be counting your money, you gotta be doing a lot of math. Okay, fine. Scrabble, okay. You you're working on your spelling, working on your words, fine. But but you what know about Candyland. Hmm. We do Candyland. We, we had Candyland, <laughs> but but it was when we were, you know. It, it was still in the closet when I was older, but when we were four, five, six and learning our numbers, it was a great way to, to learn to count. Roll, math. roll your dice, count, math. et cetera. But, Teaching your grandchildren math. But, but I remember being like 11 or 12 and somebody brought us a game, which the only redeeming quality about it was the counting the spaces out. And mom was so ticked because she was like, this is going to be a waste of their time as opposed to, you know. <laughs> Would you read only educational books? No, 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 no. Hold on. But but my point being is that, and, and, and this is why we give her grief and maybe it went a little too far. But my point being is you can be intentional about everything you do. And it, it's, it's a huge, it was a huge weight on her, but she was constantly being vigilant about, I don't want to be wasting my time doing something that talking about time on task, time on task. And it wasn't necessarily, I mean, our, our school days were just the morning, right? But we were still learning stuff all through the afternoon because she was intentional about what we were exposed to. Mm -hmm. That's, that's my point. (laughs) You can play Candyland, Martin. (laughs) And you can read whatever books you want to. Okay, good. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you all is because we've talked a lot on this podcast about being lifelong learners, but I admire you three because you're also lifelong teachers and you've been bringing people along for your whole life. So I enjoyed this conversation and hearing your advice for teachers. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, 
or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.